right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the FearCast. My name is Kevin Foss, and I am a licensed therapist here in California, and um, I specialize in the treatment of OCD, anxiety, and uh, uh, OC and anxiety spectrum disorders. So uh, that includes a lot of things, but um, uh, that's the stuff that this podcast is dedicated to. It's uh, uh, the treatment of and getting your life back from these various issues. So uh, I know I talk a lot about OCD on this uh, on this show, but uh, this show is just uh, it is beyond just OCD. It is included with anything that really makes us feel nervous, anything that you could be afraid of. Um, I mean, I, I've said this a gazillion times. Our fear is only limited by our human imagination. So if you can think about it. You can be afraid of it, and you can have an obsession about it. You can be uh, worried by it. You can lose sleep over it. All of those things. So this episode, we're going to be going over uh, a couple of things. So one, uh, the FearCast, for those of you who are new to the show, uh, the FearCast is a question and answer based podcast. At least that's the way that I would love it to be. And today, I've got a question from a listener. So I'm going to be going over that near the end. At the front end here of the show, I'm going to be talking a little bit about the uh, another way that we can think about anxiety, and this is just across the board. Again, this is this is panic disorder. This is a specific phobia. It's social anxiety. It's OCD as well. Um, it's just another way to think about how we can manage our anxiety when it spikes, when it hits us, uh, and how we can get ourselves through it until the next spike because you know we can anticipate that we're going to have these ups and downs and some days are going to be great and some days are going to be less than great and that's okay because it's life and it's a feeling but um that, that's a little uh, getting ahead of myself so so if you have a question for a future episode, you can go over to fearcastpodcast.com and you go to the submit a question link there and you can submit me a question. Um, and uh, I will read every single question that comes in. And again, this question that I got is from one of you listeners out there. Um, but uh, send it in. I will use it for a future episode. And um and also, I wanted to add that if you have some feedback for me or for uh, something else that you perhaps wanted to add to the question that perhaps I didn't get to or you think would be important for that listener, let me know. I'd be more than happy to add that and read that uh, in a future episode in response to a previous episode. So feel free to email me those questions there. All right, so on to the discussion of something, some way that we can reframe anxiety. This is actually kind of one of my favorite ways to reframe what anxiety means to us, how we've gotten there, and then also what we can do in the middle of it. Now, this is a, this whole episode is going to be very much uh, dichotomous um, from what we're talking about in the front end to the the, the back end. Um, and, and when I ask this question to clients about this uh, a particular reframe, sometimes I get the answer of no, and that's totally fine. And then I have to scramble to try to figure out another way to reframe this. Um, but I, I really like this way to reframe um, uh, OCD and anxiety spikes because it's a situation that a lot of us have been through and it can feel like a struggle, but you know what? We all get through it. Now, when I ask the question, uh, a lot of people are automatically going to know where I'm going with this, and that's great. Um, some clients just hear me talk about it and they go, 
no need to explain. I get everything about it and it's perfect. Or they, they say, I know where you're going with it. And yeah, I, I've, I've been there and I kind of get where we're going with this. So um, so we're going to talk about it and then I'm going to try to expand on this a, a little bit. But um, so here's the question. Has anybody out there been drunk before? Anybody? I'm pretty sure a lot, if not most of the people who listen to this podcast have been drunk at least once in their life. So if you've been drunk before, you know how this goes. When you've been drunk before, you know that you're you're not thinking very clearly. We don't really do things that are very consistent with who we are. We usually, when we're drunk, we're usually acting out of impulse. The things that we do are kind of based on a very narrow body of information, and you know, again, oftentimes we we jump to conclusions, uh, uh, very irrational conclusions uh, as well. Um, we're often acting outside of our typical and desired sense of behaviors and character as well. So we're doing a lot of stuff that we don't normally do. I mean, to think about it, sometimes we get the idea if you're if you're drunk, if you've been there, uh, you might get the bright idea to text your ex bad idea. You might get the bright idea that, uh, you know, maybe I should go over there and tell that dude uh, what's really on my mind. It's a bad idea. Maybe if you're drunk, you start getting on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook and you start putting up a whole bunch of things that you think are hilarious and they are not. Or you start calling up old friends or doing something or going over to a friend at, at the party and you start talking about how much you love a man and how great they are and, and how wonderful everything is. Um, and you might be exaggerating, you might be blowing things way out of proportion, you might be forgetting a lot of things, because that's what we do when we're drunk. We are not our normal, typical selves. Now, again, when you're drunk, you're not making the best decisions you've ever made before. No one has ever said, well, you know what? I need to do my taxes. I better get hammered first. No, you've never heard the phrase drunk as a judge, right? What is it? It is sober as a judge, right? It's it implies that someone is clear thinking, focused, balanced. And it's what we are not when we are drunk. So when we are drunk, what do we do? Well, we need to, again, we need to sober up. So what's the first thing that we do? Number one, stop drinking. That's right. Stop engaging in the behavior that got us there to excessive drunkenness in the first place. Step two, we engage in self-care. We drink water, we back off of unhelpful activities, perhaps drinking, perhaps about to text somebody. And then we also, we eat comfort food, right? We eat jack-in-the-box tacos, we have mac and cheese, some people will make, what, grilled cheese, something, something that is just awful for our body, but is delicious and it helps in the moment. Lastly, we wait for the drunkenness to wear off before we make those tough decisions. And that might be we, we take a nap or go to bed. It means that, you know, we, we go into another room and kind of wait for us to kind of mellow out a little bit before we engage in a conversation or an action or something to that effect. Now, why I'm talking about this here is that sometimes when we are spiked with our anxiety, we are anxious drunk, meaning our anxiety has gone up way too much to the point that, you know what, you and I are not thinking very clearly. Just like when we are alcohol drunk, we are acting out of impulse. We are basing our responses off of a very narrow body of information. Oftentimes, we're jumping to irrational conclusions. See a previous episode on cognitive distortions on this. 
And also, we are acting outside of our typical and desired set of behaviors and character. We're doing things we don't normally want to do. If we were to say, hey, is this who I ultimately want to be? Am I acting in the way that I would like to be known as or known for? Generally speaking, when we reflect on the times that we were spiked with our anxiety, we are not. We are avoidant. We are compulsive. We are repetitive. There's a lot of things that we do in those times that we don't want to say are us. So, what do we do in those moments that we are anxious drunk? So, number one is to say, is to one, number one is to acknowledge, man, I'm anxious drunk. So, when your anxiety has spiked, and you know what that feeling is like, right? You get this the the the, the butterflies in your stomach, the pressing in your chest, maybe the pounding in your your heart is pounding. Uh, you get the sweats. Some people will describe like like their their head being pressed in or their brain exploding out, or they start feeling shaky or cold or whatever the the feeling is. But and sometimes it's just a really small, subtle feeling that we have. For some of us with social anxiety, we just get this this lack of urge, a lack of follow through. We don't want to go and talk to somebody. That can be a little bit of anxious drunk. Same thing with health anxiety. We feel sick. Someone says, hey, maybe you should go to see a doctor. And we go, mm, no. And it can again, it can feel very subtle, but it's helpful to recognize what it is that makes you feel when you are anxious, or in other words, anxious drunk. All right, so once we've recognized that we are, what do we do? The same stuff that we do when we're regular drunk. Number one, stop engaging in unhelpful behaviors. Long story short, compulsions. Stop doing them. They're unhelpful. Generally speaking, when we do compulsions, we only get more anxious, more confused, more frustrated, and generally speaking, does not solve the problem. If we are already anxious, going online and reading that article again is not going to be helpful. If we're really anxious, being incredibly avoidant isn't really going to help us in the long run. So, number one, stop engaging in unhelpful behaviors. Number two is we engage in self-care. And this might be, for some of us, walking around the block. It could be watching the office again. These first two can sound very avoidant, and sure, sometimes they are, but sometimes they are also appropriate self-care. We can also, when we're doing self-care, we can practice grounding techniques. We can reflect on helpful tools that your therapist put together for you. You can exercise. You can listen to music. You can, man, you can do almost anything. I think one of the first episodes I ever did was on developing an emergency self-care kit. I think I just called it a, 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 an anxiety emergency kit. It, it talks all about this: how you can put put a put a, a set of things together that you know are really going to work for you in those moments. So after we've pulled back on unhelpful behaviors, we're going to gauge in appropriate healthy self-care. And then what are we going to do? The third thing is just like being regular drunk, we are going to wait for anxiety to wear off before making big decisions or even rash decisions. And that's going to be mindfully re-engaging in your life. And it's going to be remembering that you'll eventually sober up. You will. Your anxiety is eventually going to come down, but it's going to take a little bit of time and patience to get through to that place where your parasympathetic nervous system starts kicking in and your subjective, meaning the, the physical symptoms of anxiety, start coming down. But we're going to get through it. And that's where the, the, the self-care is really going to help in getting you through that. So one thing I would challenge everybody to do this week is that next time you're feeling really anxious, I want you to point out, man, I'm feeling anxious drunk, meaning 
I am not thinking very clearly right now. And perhaps being in this state of high anxiety, I don't need to make this decision right now, or I ought not to make this decision right now, or do this action, or whatever it is. So I'm going to hold back. I'm going to pull back on this decision. And it might look like you pumping the brakes on doing a compulsion. It might, might look like you pumping the brakes on asking for reassurance again. For some of you, it might look like actually engaging, meaning holding back on the avoidance that perhaps you've done a lot. Now, unfortunately, this analogy does fall apart at some point because um, obviously the one way to avoid being actual drunk is to avoid drinking in the first place. However, sometimes we can't avoid feeling anxious. It just kind of shows up. And so we're, we're we're kind of prone to anxiety spikes from time to time, especially when we engage in specific subjects or specific activities. Um, but one of the best things that we can do then is to anticipate those situations or those places or those times that are going to cause us anxiety, meaning going to make us feel anxious, drunk, perhaps. Approach them with caution. Approach them with, with confidence that you can be able to get through it if you let yourself ride out that anxiety. As a weird way to even consider the, the way that this is breaking down is then consider that, you know, obviously, if we can't avoid drinking at all or anxious drinking or whatever it is, is that um, consider ourselves that we have auto brewery syndrome, which is, of course, a super duper rare situation or a super duper uh, condition that uh, uh, that our body just naturally ferments the food that we've already had in our body, uh, creating alcohol as a natural byproduct and getting into your system and making you drunk, not because you've had alcohol, but just because of a side effect of you living your life. Now, uh, this might be super triggering to those of you with uh, health anxiety or with... Um, uh, some folks have have uh, a strong anxiety about uh, losing their sobriety or resetting their sobriety or just becoming drunk or losing their ever-loving mind. So, of course, this might be triggering. But um, again, for the very literal folks out there, this is where the analogy breaks down. All right. Aside from that, the whole point is to say, when we feel anxious, recognize, man, number one, I'm feeling anxious drunk. I need to hold back on the things that are no longer going to be helpful for me in this moment. I need to get to a point of, of anxious sobriety, meaning wait for my anxiety to come down. And to get there, I'm going to relax. I'm going to do some self-care. I'm going to eat some tacos. I'm going to watch TV. I'm going to hang out with a friend. I'm going to resist my compulsions and once my anxiety comes down, then I'll be able to make a more rational decision as to whether or not that activity, that question, that interaction, that behavior is who I really want to be. So I hope this hasn't further confused everybody, but has uh, provided a, perhaps a fun or a very weird way to consider anxiety and how it all impacts us. All right, off to the question. Okay, so this question comes from Nikki. Nikki asks, Hi, I just recently started listening to your podcast and I'm really appreciative of it and enjoy it. Uh, hey, thanks. Um, she asks, I have a religious question that has truly bothered me and my OCD flares lately. I heard your episode with Mike Erie and thought you might be able to provide good answers or a resource for this. My question is, if God already knows which humans are going to hell, I get that he gives us free will, then isn't it kind of cruel and pointless? If he loves us and wouldn't want that, 
Why create those people if he knows their outcome anyways? All right, Nikki, thank you uh, for that question. What a great and uh, an overwhelming question to ask. So, um, so for those of you who are not religious, who are not Christian, or just don't care about this, um, this question might seem a little odd. It might seem a little weird, but this, just like anything, we can obsess about anything. And for Nikki, it sounds like for you that this question has really gotten a hold of you. And it sounds like it, it, it doesn't just feel like an important thing. It feels like an ultimate thing. It almost, it almost sounds like in your question that, that your faith kind of hinges on this, that, that who God is kind of hinges on this. Now, Nikki, before I even go on, I just want to acknowledge that th- this question, this conundrum, this, this theological uh, issue, it's common to all Christians. It's common to, it, it, it perhaps is common to everybody who, who has faith and kind of considering, well, you know, what, what does it mean for someone who, you know, doesn't believe in God or doesn't follow the, 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 the way that we view salvation or, or, you know, may or may not get salvation or may never learn about salvation, all, all those kind of questions. This is very common. And I'll speak specifically for, for uh, Christianity for the remainder of this question, since I, uh, it sounds like that's where this one is coming from, especially based on your uh, comment about the Mike Erie uh, episode. So the average Christian, if they think about this long enough, is eventually going to get to this, and it's it's confusing. It's very confusing. This uh, your, your your question. Now again, these are questions that that theologians have been wrestling with for thousands of years. Um, very very smart people have wrestled back and forth and tried to consider and weigh the options. And it sounds like what you're looking for are some good resources on folks who would have these answers, uh, who have worked this out, and uh, and perhaps could provide you with that answer. Um, and, and unfortunately, I don't have those resources. I don't have uh, who who would have a good answer uh, to your question. And and uh, honestly, I. I haven't. I anticipate that you've already looked up a ton of information on this. Very often, if someone experiences questions like this, and in my experience, if you're wrestling with a question that's kind of deep and heavy like this, you've looked this up. The average person, when you get these big, important questions, you're you're going to look the, up the information. You're going to try to research this a little bit more, and and in the process, probably find plenty of theological commentaries on this, and uh, I, people making arguments on both sides of the issues. And and you know, there those resources are out there. I bet if you did a simple Google search, I bet you'd be able to find that. But you know what? Again, I bet you've already done this. Now. The average person, again, after they've done all this research, is likely to then go and talk to friends about this issue. They're going to talk to their pastors, their priests, their church leaders, their elders, their deacons, um, and they're going to ask them their thoughts on this. What do you think about this? Is this a problem for you? How do you reconcile this? What happens if we don't get the answer to it? What happens if it means that this really is pointless? Kind of addressing all of those issues would be something the average person might do. Because again, it sounds like this question really backs us up into a theological corner about believing in believing in this God that potentially is 
in just this this terror, this tyrannical God that's out to only hurt us or even worse, takes pleasure and delights in seeing our pain and destruction. Now that that story really conflicts with this idea of a, of a of a loving God. I can imagine pretty much anybody feeling uncomfortable with this proposition, this possibility of that this is who God is. And unfortunately, with all that said, I have to admit that I don't have the answer to it. And more importantly, I don't think anybody has the answer to this. I think the only person who truly has the answer to this is God. And I don't think, I know actually, that I am certainly not smart enough to understand all of it. Furthermore, I don't think anybody out there has that answer. This is a, 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 a terrifying proposition, your question. But again, all of us down here are just speculating about what the answer is, what does it mean, why is it happening. The only person who really understands the answer to all of it is going to be God. And then that means that you and I are going to have to f- be forced into a position of finding a way to make it work for us, finding a way to move forward in life in some possible way. Because as, as I mentioned earlier, the average person in church may run across this question at some point. They may wrestle with this question at some point. If they're, if they're interested enough, they might get to it. They might go back and forth with it and, and kind of get worried as you are about the implications of it, but then they might round up. They might do some research, read some books, read some commentaries, get into, uh, uh, get into the scripture a bit more intensely. But then at some point, because they're going to run out of answers, they're going to run out of resources that, that, uh, of people who have talked about this in a meaningful way, and they're going to have to round up to a decision and round up to something. And that's where your work is going to have to be. And more importantly, rounding up to acceptance of the discomfort in the reality that you and I aren't going to get all the answers about God or about faith. And that's uncomfortable. But as I've talked about before, that's the meaning of faith. Faith is not having all the answers. If we had all the answers, it'd be called proof, not faith. Faith inherently requires missing pieces of information that we take the information that we have and we, and we, we draw conclusions from or we trust that there's this gap between us and the true answer. And we, we trust that there is a link between those two things or those two sides of things. But while I'm unfortunately unable to give you some good resources or some good answers on it, and furthermore, I actually don't think it would have been helpful at all, even if I had that information. Because again, I think you've already looked up this information, you already know it, you've already read it, and you probably know way more about this than I do. I think further research on your end is going to be compulsive. What I can offer you is some other ways to think about this and perhaps some ways that you can help or... And perhaps some other ways that can help to manage this anxiety and to get through this and kind of find a way for this doubt and this uncertainty and this discomfort to have a place in your life along with faith and belief, because these two things can exist at the same time. So one of the first things that I would do if you were sitting in my office is, is we'd talk about what would it mean to you if you found out the answers And furthermore, what would it mean if you never found out the answers? 
We think about, or you've heard me talk about this before, what is the feared story? It's the what if, it's the if then. What is it that you're afraid of in this? So you can think about, well, what are you afraid of discovering or what are you afraid might then be true? What does your brain tell you about that? How would this information change your belief in God? How would it change you? And how would it affect how you moved forward in life and even in your faith? Furthermore, consider, what are your resulting compulsions about this? Is it reading? Is it researching? Is it asking other people for information? Is it prayer? Is it avoidance of religious activity? Is it emailing podcasts? All of those things can be compulsive. Again, trying to satisfy this uncomfortable answer and trying to get to a level of certainty that God is okay again. God is not this tyrannical monster. I'm mind-reading you for a moment, if you don't mind. Now, back to what the average person would do. The average person would ask about this. They'd read about it. And again, I think that you've already done this, Nikki. Now, what I'd ask you to do is consider, well, what have people already said? What answers have you gotten? And again, likely you've asked trying to find evidence or trying to find reason or trying to find the answers. However, you can't really find them. So, while nothing seems to be satisfying this level of anxiety and fully answering the question, you've got to consider, well, which one then feels most consistent with your understanding of God from the, the, from the, the God that you've learned about and trusted and have followed and have understood the best degree that you can, which one of those answers and which one of those explanations seems to fit the best? That's where a little bit of that rounding up comes from. We consider, well, from, from this bit of information, and you know, I, I take all this bit of information that I've learned, and I take all this information that I don't have, I take these two sides and say, well, here is the conclusion that I have to come to. Because otherwise, if you and I can't move forward in life without having all the questions answered and all the information completed, we're never going to move forward. But again, what would the average person do? Given that this is an issue for a lot of Christians, they'd again, they'd most, most of them would think about it, they'd pray, they'd consider, they'd ask again, then they'd round up to the most reasonable and workable answer. Some of the ways that people go about trying to get to an answer and trying to incorporate this doubt into their faith is by reflecting on things like the mysteries of God, or even saying things like, God works in mysterious ways. I'm guaranteed you've heard that before. Some people will say, we can't understand God's wisdom, that his wisdom is beyond ours, or what do they say, like God's uh, God's foolishness is beyond our wisdom, or I might have that reversed, um, uh, meaning our 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 wisdom is God's foolishness. There's a verse in there that I'm forgetting. Um, they also might just round this up to, you know what? I don't know, but God has a plan. Essentially what that is, is it's punting the answer. And I think this is the appropriate thing to do, punting the answer back to God. God is the one who has the answers to all of this. And our job is to then sit in the reality that we don't know. So what are some things that you can then do to help get you to a place where you can sit with this discomfort? Well, I know you've heard me talk about it before, but doing exposures to that feeling is going to be incredibly helpful. Now, one of the best ways to do this, I think, is through scripting. Now, if you have a therapist, I would encourage you to talk with him or her about this. Um, there's going to be a gazillion articles about this online. You can read about scripting if you if you aren't familiar with it. But scripting is going to be an exercise in which you write out the story of your worst fear happening in first person and present tense and with a level of detail that describes 
the the actual fear in realistic terms about how it would happen and how it would progress. And then reading that story over and over again until you can read that story while resisting compulsions, and over time your anxiety is likely to come down. Now, while that's all very helpful, the number one thing that I want you to do, Nikki, is to resist compulsions. And what that's going to look like is resisting the excessive prayer, if that's what you're doing, resisting further research, if that's what you're doing, and resisting, resisting further asking of priests and pastors and friends, if that's what you're doing. Now, that doesn't mean that you give up on this entirely and just kind of go, well, I'm fine with it now, because you're not. I, I know you're not. But finding a way to progressively minimize all of those compulsive behaviors, and even if you were to just, if you were able to minimize it down to a single prayer, that would be fine. And that single prayer could sound something like, God, if you see fit, grant me the wisdom to understand my questions. Meaning, if you think that I can handle the answers, God, give me the answers. And then you'd go on to say, or grant me the strength to shoulder my anxiety and uncertainty. Now, what that is, is saying, hey, God, if you want to give me the answers, that would be fantastic. That's what I really want. Or, God, give me the ability to manage the anxiety. And in that, that's an act of faith. It's you giving the responsibility back to God and accepting your part of the responsibility and saying, you know, I don't have all the answers, but I'm going to have to manage this and I'm going to have to trust that you, God, do have all the answers. Now, in addition to that, something that can be really helpful, an exercise that I really like to do, uh, is, is to go back to what I call the statement of faith. Um, I guess a lot of people call it a statement of faith. Every church has a statement of faith, uh, and it just outlines the, the, the specific details of, of what they believe, um, the specific doctrines they, they follow, and stuff like that. And it tells you what the church is, who they're about, what they're about, what the actions they find important, and stuff like that. We can do this for ourselves, and I, what I would love for you to do, and this is a, a mindful exercise, and, and this is a, um, a kind of cognitive restructuring exercise as well, but what I'd love for you to do is to reflect back on what the core of your faith is. What is the most important thing or the most important things for you? And I want you to break that down into two sentences. Fill out two sentences that describes what it means to be a Christian, what is at its core to you. And as you're writing this, consider, is this consistent with who you truly have been, historically have been, have historically believed? Is this consistent with the vast majority, I mean, 85% of the other people in your church, would they similarly believe these things? So I want you to break down your faith into a simple two-line statement, and then once you've done that, you can run it by your past, your pre- your pastors, your preacher, your, your maybe a good friend who who you think knows you and understands anxiety and understands your faith, and just say, "Hey, does this sound completely crazy, or is this kind of consistent with with what it means to be a Christian from your denomination, from your worldview, things like that?" And see what they say. They might challenge you on this. Go to your go to your therapist and talk to talk to him or her about this. See if some of it might be compulsive. See see if there are some cognitive distortions at play in this. But this can be a really really helpful tool to finding what the basics of your faith is. Because remember, in, in scrupulosity, what it does is it. it it makes faith excessively complicated, and we, we then get caught up in extraneous issues, and it minimizes core issues, and way overemphasizes confusing concepts, poorly defined issues, um, or even you know overemphasizes just 
existential philosophical issues that are usually seminary Olympic level stuff. And uh, the average person can get lost in the weeds with it. I would get lost in the weeds. It sounds like you are getting lost in the weeds too. Some people enjoy these conversations and these thoughts, but it sounds like to you, it has become terrifying and wildly uncomfortable. So backing off of this, when you are anxious drunk, we back off of that conversation and we let that anxiety start coming down. Continuing to push into it ain't helping. Continuing to drink in your in your anxious drunkenness ain't helping right now. So we need to hold back. So to recap, the two things that I would have you do is to one, resist compulsions and incorporate that simple prayer into your life. And if that's the one thing, the one compulsion that you do, great. If you can keep it to that, fantastic. Second, develop that core and kind of simple faith statement about who you are, what you're about, what it means to be a Christian, and see about practicing that. Now, obviously, that can be a little bit more confusing, but going back to just the simplicity of it, what does it mean? Because all this other stuff that it sounds like you're getting wrapped up in is bogging you down, it sounds like, and, and is becoming excessively weighty. So instead, at its core... Is that what your faith is about, or is it about something more central to you? So, Nikki, I, I hope this was helpful. I hope it didn't get just more confusing and kind of wrapping you up in knots. But, boy, I do appreciate this question, and 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 I, I hope my answer in this question or to this question has helped someone else who might be listening to this as well. So, uh, I, Nikki, if you have another question about this for some follow up, feel free to shoot me an email again. Um, but again, I do appreciate the question. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for making it through that episode, uh, this episode number 31. So if you have a question for a future episode, uh, go over to fearcastpodcast.com, go to submit a question link there, and uh, I will read it and I will answer it on a future episode. If you have questions about my practice as well, by the way, you can go over to CalOCD, www.calocd.com, that's short for the California OCD and Anxiety Treatment Center. So I do in individual treatment, I do online treatment, I do uh, intensive outpatient treatment, I do all sorts of things. So if you have any questions about that, you can uh, go over there and you can give me a call, you can shoot me an email about that, um, and I will get back to you as soon as I can. So so again, if you have any feedback, you out there, not just Nikki, but if you, the listeners, have any feedback about this episode or about this information, um, shoot me an email. Go to submit a, a, a question link at fearcastpodcast.com, ask me a question or add a little bit of something else else and uh, I'll discuss it in the next episode so or a subsequent episode at some point whenever that happens so all right everybody um, please remember that the fearcast podcast is not substitute for psychotherapy and if you have questions about treatment and want to get into your own treatment or just need a little bit more help in your own recovery um, you can go over to fearcastpodcast.com and there's going to be some uh, uh, resources there going to be some links to some various things that uh, can be really really helpful all right everybody so with all that said until next time take a risk challenge yourself and don't take your brain too seriously bye